called weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Weird Science Marvel Comics podcast, where we're still recovering from the holiday season and all the trouble that that causes with people recording and schedules and things like that. But here we are. We're going to be going through a couple, and thankfully, it's only a couple of issues that involve the Dark Web event as well as some other books as well. But before we get into that, I would like you to go over to the Twitters at WS Marvel Comics. Follow us. We'll follow you on back. Go over to our website, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com, and then check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash weirdscience, where you can get a bunch of shows. If you like podcasts, that's the place to be. And... There's a bunch of Marvel stuff, DC, manga, indie, all of that all wrapped up into one, a celebration of comicdom it is. And then also go check out our YouTube channel. Just look up Weird Science Comics on the YouTubes. You'll find us there or go into the show notes and there will be things to click and clack over there. But without further ado, we're going to head off. And like I said, we're going to be doing a bunch of the dark web stuff. We're going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man and also Venom. And while I did like Venom a little more, it wasn't because it's a dark web event tie-in. It's more because we kind of got some cool Venom stuff, even though you have to force the issue. But boy, Amazing Spider-Man, I just don't know. I don't know what's going on with this event. I see a lot of people throwing shade at it, so I can't be the only one who's not enjoying it, but we'll have fun talking about it. And actually, I do like to throw some shade, but usually I like to do it in songs, so we're going to go off to that, and then we'll be there with the books. At this point, I don't think my expectations of any dark web issue can be any lower. While Zeb Wells and his crew of misfits tries to get readers to laugh along with them, most are laughing directly at them. And actually, that's not true since most readers have already given up on this so-called event. However, it's my lot in life to read and review stuff, so you don't have to. So let's get into it, and we'll start things off as we usually do. Here are the credits for Amazing Spider-Man number 16. It is written by Zeb Wells, pencils by Ed McGinnis, inks by Cliff Rathburn, colors by Marcel Menez, letters by BC's Joe Caramagna, 
And the recap says hell has been brought to New York City and Spider-Man's clone Ben Riley, a.k.a. Chasm, is to blame. Uh, I think it's more of Madeline Pryor and that organ, right? Peter and Ben's rocky reunion was cut short by a regressed Venom hunting down Spider-Man. But while Venom was operating on the raw strength and the relentless lust for violence of their days of old, Peter was running on muscle memory from all his past experience tangling with the symbiote. After subjecting Venom to the supersonic screams of dozens of demonized Christmas trees, <laughs> seriously, I mean, just right there, proof positive, Peter handily bested his old foe. But it's not time for a victory lap yet. Round two is about to begin the fight you've all been waiting for, Spider-Man versus Chasm. And seriously, I don't know if you're going to do a victory lap when you end up using demonized Christmas trees to bring down Venom, but I guess you got to count your wins as a win. That That's there, but right there shows just the ridiculousness of all of this. And the issue opens with Ben Riley recapping a big scene from Amazing Spider-Man number 894. And just a little note here, that's legacy number 894, but actually issue 93 of the Beyond Air. It's kind of annoying. They don't give you the actual issue number. I get it. I know the legacy deal. Hey, we're getting very close to 900 and then 1,000, all that. But tell people that it's also issue 93 so they can go and actually find it easy if you want them to go back and read it. It doesn't really matter because much of what Ben says here is just him being an unreliable narrator and things didn't happen this way anyway. But Wells tries to play up the wrong memories as a bit of a joke. And here's the thing. It's poking fun at everything Ben is fighting for, and that's not a joke. I know you want to tell a jokey story. I know you can't get out of your way with your damn jokes, but the idea that Ben is fighting to get these memories back should not be the joke. And it's so over the top with the jokey dialogue and even the cartoony art that what you're doing then is making your entire story a joke. Another thing that I haven't mentioned in my review so far that's kind of bothering me in the background is the fact that Wells had to really force all of Ben's hate to just be at Peter so that it fits the story. Maybe in an alt world, a handsomer, more popular guy you know, with the same name as me, is reading and reviewing the story where Peter and Ben actually team up and go after the Beyond Corporation for what they did to both of them. And then by the end of that, they realize that the most important memories are the ones they made along the way. Oh, my goodness gracious. See, there could be feels to this. There could be some really good character moments. But even the most important thing for Ben Riley, the missing memories, become just a over-the-top joke to Zeb Wells. And that is nonsense. So it's way too obvious what's going on here, though. The opening scene is only here to show everyone that Ben indeed fell into a vat of psycho-reactive goo. And we'll be getting back to the goo in just a moment, because the issue continues with Peter and Ben fighting in the streets of New York City. And while the whole demonic possession of sentient objects is already way, way stale, I did chuckle at this poor scooter who never wanted to be alive 
and ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'll give the scooter a little break, but all the other stuff nonsense. Overall, though, I still don't understand what Seb Wells is thinking because of all the things that happen in this beyond era that he kind of headed, you end up where what he's grabbing onto for the vibe of this whole dark web is the vibe of the sentient sandwiches that Cody Ziegler ended up throwing into his issues and were dumb then and they're dumb now. So, why did Zeb Wells remind us earlier about the psychoreactive goo? Well, because it gives Ben new powers, of course. His spider sense can now be used to attack, and he can make what seems to be construct weapons as well. He does both, and after quickly seeing what Venom will be doing in his tie-in book, the fight just keeps going on between Ben and Peter. Ben shows Peter that Robbie and Jay Jonah are stuck in limbo. And then that distraction allows him to send Peter to Limbo as well. The issue's cliffhanger with Peter having the job from hell, I mean Limbo, almost made me throw the comic book out the window. And I read things digitally. It's that ridiculous. And at the beginning, I said my expectations couldn't be any lower for this book. And I guess Seb Wells took it as a challenge. I hated this issue and I hate this event. The constant attempts at humor are beyond annoying. A bit of a pun there, people. And it's a shame because this could have been a story with a lot of depth and feels to it. And while I think Spider-Man comes out of this pretty clear, it's a shame to have Ben Riley in a story that's such a joke because it does make him a joke as well. And that's not what I want for old Ben and especially the Ben Riley fans. But here's the deal. If we ended up not having that humor, we never would have gotten strollers trying to eat babies and fire hydrants attacking dogs. And I mean, what kind of life would we have without those? Oh, my goodness. The answer is a better life, actually. So there's a spoiler. I'm giving Amazing Spider-Man number 16 a 4 out of 10, only because I'm worried I have to leave some room to go down lower later. It's like we're playing Limbo. With these scores, yet another pun. You're welcome. I'm sure someone will be tempted to comment why review all these if I don't like it. And to them, I say that's exactly the reason I need to review it. Remember, I do this so you don't have to. And once again, you're welcome. All right, so let's keep this nonsense train chugging along as we go off to another dark web tie-in. This is Venom. This is Venom number 14. And how about that dark web, huh? And while it seems like most of the books I'm reading are caught up in it, it's probably because most of the books I'm reading are caught up in it. And while they had to jump through some hoops to get Venom involved in all this mess, at least Al Ewing takes things a bit more seriously here and gives his regular Venom readers a reason to get involved, even if they aren't into the dark web event. And who is? But we also get to see what Madeline Pryor is up to as well here. But let's get into it, and as we always do, we'll start with the credits. Venom number 14 is written by Al Ewing, with pencils by Brian Hitch, inks by Andrew Curry, colors by Alex Sinclair and VCs Clayton Cowles on letters. And here is the full recap, which half of it is to the Venom book, and then you end up by the end shoving it right into this whole dark web event. But here we go. After trying to expand his abilities, Eddie Brock's mind became dislodged from his body, and he awoke within a symbiotic form in the Garden of Time, a paradise at the end of time itself, inhabited by what's left of the galaxy symbiotes and the kings in black who reigned after Eddie 
led by the enigmatic Meridius. But the garden is not what it seems. Desperate to return home to his son, Dylan, Eddie has struggled to re-enter the time stream, only to be held back by forces beyond his understanding. Now the force stands revealed as Meridius himself. He is a future version of Eddie. All the kings in black are. Now we'll do the dark web part. Horrified, Eddie escaped the garden and wound up in limbo, where he met its ruler, Madeline Pryor, a.k.a. the Goblin Queen, a clone of Jean Grey, a.k.a. Marvel Girl, and her ally, Ben Riley, a.k.a. Chasm, a clone of Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man. I'd just like to add the a.k.a.s. Both promised to help Eddie get back home to his son, Dylan, but not without a cost. Okay, so we just went through this recap, right? So I don't think it's going to shock anybody when I say that the current Venom book by Al Ewing and Ram V is pretty dense, a little too dense to throw into an event as is. I think it would be damn near impossible to get new readers up to speed in time, so they don't even try. And that's not shade, since I'm reading the Venom book myself and I barely know what the hell is going on half the time. That is shade. But to make things work, you just end up having a flashback. You show that Ben Riley using some of his new psycho-reactive goo powers, maybe some limbo magic, all that combined, they revert Venom back to his quote-unquote factory settings, and off we go, easy peasy. And that it felt forced when I first read it, but then the more I thought about it, it actually is a pretty smart idea because anybody can wrap their head around a classic Venom. The thing that Al Ewing does that I appreciate He makes it work in his regular Venom run. Yeah, it might be kind of a crappy thing to throw this book into something like this, but if they're going to do it, Al Ewing is there to make it at least work, and I do appreciate that. So why do we need Venom? You know, besides him being, you know, a cash cow, you know, that sort of thing. Well, he's here for his muscle. To set up a distraction and possibly his long tongue. I mean, I don't know what happens in limbo stays in limbo. But Madeline Pryor, she's going to use him in this Ocean's Eleven type caper that she has set up. Now, she hates the X-Men, always pissed off at them. She wants to get back at them. She wants to trigger them. And so she has come up with this caper and... To do all this, she has Venom go into the X-Men's Honeycomb Hideout Treehouse, where he immediately starts fighting Sink. Now, that might sound okay. That that's, sounds okay. The, the problem I have with it is they actually seem surprised that Sink or anybody's there. When you end up having Venom go in and Sink starts fighting them, you end up having both Janina and Madeline confused. I didn't think anybody was going to be there. Well, neither did I. Well, if that was the case, why'd you send Venom in anyway? Why would he have gone in in the first place? Because what you're really just going to do now is use Venom as that distraction. Venom is fighting Sink, and while that's happening, you end up getting Janine, a.k.a. Hallow's Eve, using her powers to go in and take the Cerebro Drive that is in the treehouse. She takes that, hands it over to the Goblin Queen, Madeline Pryor. Now, I dropped the X-Books two summers ago. It was in the first Hellfire Gala, if you're concerned. Uh, And I still know that this is a big thing. And even if you don't, Janine kind of hints at it. She kind of says, well, I think this has to do with the Resurrections. I'm not sure, but it's a big thing. Hands it over to Madeline. 
And that is pretty big. Besides that, though, besides the, you know, dark web stuff there, Al Ewing gives his Venom readers pretty cool fight with Sync that leaves the classic Venom symbiote without Eddie, which is pretty crazy, and a cool cliffhanger that did leave me wanting more. And it's kind of a twist, the cliffhanger, because remember, all of this was set up where Eddie agrees to do it so that he can find his son, Dylan. Well, Eddie is no longer in the symbiote. We don't know what happened to him. But then the Venom symbiote, Sans Eddie, does run straight into Dylan, who's also looking classic Venom. So it is a crazy deal. I want to see how this is resolved, how this carries on. I think that that was pretty darn cool. And this was a pretty good issue of Venom that just happens to tie into the Dark Web event. Al Ewing certainly doesn't get caught up in too much of the nonsense that we've seen in a lot of other books, and that's driven me crazy, and gives readers of his own book, of the Venom book, and Dark Web readers some big moments, while Brian Hitch makes it all look great. And so it shocked me. I did not expect to come into this and like it as much as I did, but I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. I think this is easily my favorite time to the Dark Web event, but It's because you end up having Al Ewing do what you should do. If you have a current book that people are reading, give them something as well as give people who are there for the event something. It's the best of both worlds. It really works out, and I do appreciate Al for doing that. And we'll get to the next book in just one second. Strange Academy Finals number three. And... Why not just start this off by pissing everybody off by saying that I think Strange Academy is one of the most overrated books of the past couple of years. Now, before you spam me with hate mail, let me add that it's also one of my favorite books of the last couple of years. I just don't think it's the 10 out of 10 book that most seem to think it is. The concept and the characters are great, but personally, I don't think it's ever really fully reached its true potential. But hey. There's no time like the present, so let's see if maybe this issue is where everything comes together. All right, let's start off with what we usually do, the credits and the recap. It is Strange Academy Finals number 3, written by Scotty Young, art by Umberto Ramos, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. When the students of Strange Academy learned their old friend and classmate Calvin Morse had gotten into life-threatening trouble with the wish-dealing magician gas lamp, they knew they had to act. The rescue mission soon turned into a fight for all of their lives against Gaslamp that concluded in a magical explosion decimating several blocks of the French Quarter. Meanwhile, Emily Bright and her remaining dropouts, Desi and Irik, have been lying in wait in the Dark Dimension. What schemes do they have in store for the hallowed halls of Strange Academy? So the issue opens with a meeting of the New Orleans Council of Magicians, Wizards, and Warlocks, and everything else in between to figure out what to do with Dr. Voodoo and the Strange Academy kids and possibly Strange Academy itself. I mean, you ended up having the kids rolling into New Orleans unsupervised, using magic, and blowing up three blocks of the French Quarter. That is not a good thing. I'll give Voodoo a lot of credit. He tries to make a positive spin out of all this. He says, listen, none of us like gas lamp, right? But rules, regulations, small print does not allow us 
to act on that. We can't take them out ourselves. But the kids, you see, they they took care of him. He's gone. This is the best thing. We look the other way, and everybody is for the better, right? They're not going to go for that. I, I want Fu to be like, yeah, I, I knew you wouldn't go for that, but I tried, right? But here, get this. The kids have already come up with a plan themselves to take care of all the trouble that they caused. So, again, the council's interested. Okay, well, what is this plan? This sounds, you know, promising. And he says, get this. They're going to have a carnival fundraiser. And I would expect the whole council to start laughing for a while. I mean, that's a good one. They end up stopping and saying, okay, that that was a great joke. But what are they really going to do? What What is this real plan that they have, right? He's like, oh, no. That was the plan. And I'm telling you, three blocks of the French Quarter of New Orleans does not equal Carnival Fundraiser, but we'll go with it because they go with it. And hey, it could be some fun, right? Kind of. We do get some panels of the crazy fun everyone's having, including my favorite, Gus. But it's really just a set piece for the action. It sets up some of the things that are coming up. And I want to pause a second. To just bring up that point I had at the beginning trying to trigger people. The idea of it being an overrated book. It's more of the fact that I want more from it, right? You end up where these characters are great. I mentioned Gus as one of my favorites, right? I don't know much about Gus at all. There are other characters in this book that I know nothing about. But yet I'm interested to find that out because they look cool. The couple little interactions seem neat, but they kind of get left behind. And that is a lot of the characters. We know a bunch about a couple of the main characters, but the mid characters we don't really know that much about. And there's some we know nothing. And I think that that's what I want. I want more character work. I want more interactions, more scenes that show me what the characters are about. And maybe show them as they grow, just like Calvin in this issue. See, I set you up with that because this issue focuses on Calvin. And really, the series did start with Emily as the point of view character. But people reading this book, I think they'll agree with me. Strange Academy has been running through Calvin for quite some time. Calvin is the driving force with this book. And it's nice to get character moments from Calvin in this issue that show that he has grown. He has learned a lesson. And he's becoming a better person because of that. And it's great. When you see that, I want that more from all of the characters. Because in this, we get a first little bit where Calvin is confronted by Alvy. Alvy seems to not accept Calvin, you know, his apology for all the things he has done. And that makes sense. Calvin has done some pretty sus things recently. And even though the carnival seems like a grand old time, it wouldn't have been necessary if Calvin would have stayed on the straight and narrow. And with that, Alvy, he seems pissed, but Alvy's too nice a guy, ends up hugging it out with Calvin, and all is well, right? Well, there's the other side of Calvin's issues, and that has to do with the school and the faculty who cast him out on his own, which led to problems as well. And that's where Emily obviously comes in. And I mean, she comes into the scene because she shows up with Desi and Irik and Calvin's coat, a.k.a. Mr. Misery. And that's huge. 
That coat's supposed to be gone. That is what caused all the problems. It was the beginning of all this nonsense with Calvin, but that's what he had craved so much. The coat was taken away from him, which actually just ended up making him a normal kid, but a normal kid in a school of, you know, magic users and all that. That's not great. So I was upset here thinking Calvin was going to go full back into his old ways. It really was set up. Scott Young did a really good job of setting it up, looking like he was going to do that. But the little guy surprised me and impressed me when he fought off the temptation and told Emily and her posse to go pound sand, which was really, really cool. And in a really good moment that I think was well, well deserved. Emily gets called out fully because even earlier in this, Doyle had said to Emily that her, you know, going and making Calvin this martyr, and she was so upset that Calvin got cast out, and she was going to do something to make it right. She never cared about Calvin. It was all her deal. That was her trying to, you know, use Calvin as an excuse to do what she was doing, and Calvin calls her on it, and it's awesome. It was so good. When Calvin tells her and Ira and Desi to pounce in, get out of here. Well, while this is going on, there's some fun and you end up, everybody is fighting Shuma Gorath. And if you don't know, Shuma Gorath is the devoured god of the eternal ever was. And it was accidentally summoned to Earth by Howie and Herman. You know, something that can happen if you think a spellbook is a cookbook. And it's a funny little situational comedy deal. Calvin gets involved. He's throwing rocks and stuff at the whole Shurma Gorath. And it's really cool to see all the kids kind of teaming up with not just Voodoo, but the council as well. They're all trying to do this. But it really does, again, make this school and its students look really, really bad. So that was cool. But that is just mere peanuts compared to the ending of this book. The cliffhanger, we get to see the big bad that Emily and her hashtag Dark Dimension crew have teamed up with. It's a huge cliffhanger. It ups the ante of the series big time. I'm telling you, it's not anything that will shock you, but it still will shock you. And then by the end, you're like, oh, my God, how is this going to work itself out? This is crazy, very personal throughout. It's really good. And, yeah, after a slow start a bit, the issue kicked in, and it kicked in the high gear. Calvin is back on hashtag Team Strange Academy. And while I thought hashtag Team Sus Emily was hurting, the cliffhanger shows something far different. I mean, it was a numbers game, I thought, up until now. That's out the window. It's so good. Umberto Ramos's art, crazy good. It's outstanding. Scotty Young, again, shows that when he gets right down to it, he has created a great cast of characters that I care about. I just want more. I'll just throw that in there. But because of all that, I'm going to give Strange Academy Finals number three a a nine out of ten. All right. And next up is Moon Knight number 18. And Moon Knight is another one of those books that I like, just not as much as most people, it seems. And I go by the adage, a hero is only as good as his villains. And I've said it before, and I'll repeat myself right here, right now. Tudor is a dud of a villain. I could care less about the structure. His pyramid schemes, his tutor talks like the one Moon Knight and Tigra have crashed into at the end of the last issue. I mean, we're told that this guy is hot stuff in the vampire community, 
But I guess you have to be a bloodsucker to get it because I think he is boring as hell. So coming into this issue, I am really just hoping this is the last time we see Tudor ever again. Moon Knight number 18 is written by Jed McKay, art by Federico Sabatini, colors by Rachel Rosenberg, letters by VCs Corey Petit. This is a issue that's called Party Monster, so you know that it's fancy, right? Party Monster. Moon Knight has been attempting to dismantle the structure of the group responsible for turning his assistant Reese into a vampire. Moon Knight gathered intel on the tutor head of the structure, including the location of his upcoming international vampire conclave. Now that is fancy. The tutor sent the assassin's grandma and the Nemean after Moon Knight and his associates. The two assassins killed Moon Knight's ally Hunter's Moon. Not really. Moon Knight retaliated, capturing the assassins and along with Tigra, crashed the vampire's gathering. Now, for as long as Tudor has hung around in this book, and it's been a while, him and the structure, I don't think anybody really knows a lot about them. I'm guessing the structure, they kind of, they go with the buy low, sell high, right? I think they might do that. And Tudor, he's running around like a vampire sham wow, doing his infomercials, doing his Tudor talks. He's like Tony Little, but a vampire, and also he doesn't have the cool ponytail. Like, all of that going on. We don't know that much about them. Moon Knight even mentions here that this is their first face-to-face meeting. And so that lessens things as well. And really, at the end of all this, I think that the tutor and the structure, they were an inconvenience. They were a bit of an annoyance. They never felt like a threat. They really didn't. And the big motivation that was pushed in the recap, oh, my God, they turned Reese into a vampire. That's not even mentioned. This just ends up being a business-like talk where Moon Knight says, well, to take down the structure, I'm going to have to take you down because they're all in place to continue this. I'm like, please, just stop. Just kill this guy and get out of there. But that throws in the one thing that I was intrigued and interested in. Mark and Tiger at this point, I thought that they were just going to slice and dice this tutor and that'd be done. He's done. But they're in a room with elite vampires from around the world, an international enclave of elite vampires. How are they possibly going to get out of this situation? Well, thankfully for them, at least, it's all solved by a MacGuffin that might have sounded smart initially, but really takes the wind out of this issue's sails, and because of that makes this whole arc end in a thud. You see that while Mark talks crap to Tudor, Soldier and Reese are down below rigging the building sprinkler system to go off. And as the water starts soaking everyone in the room, Moon Knight, as a priest of Conchu, blesses it. Yep, it's now holy water, and all the vampires are set on fire because of the holy water, which makes them easy pickings then for Moon Knight, Tigra, and the late showing Hunter's Moon to just kill them all. They just go around, and pretty much it's fish in a barrel. They end up taking them out. There is no sort of struggle. This is nothing. It thuds down. And so then conveniently, at the end of all this, they find one human amongst them. Hey, look at here. (laughs) Look at this guy. And they end up where Mark says, okay, this is good. You go back to Dracula and tell him what's what. You tell Dracula that we don't want to see his stinking face around here. Which is a little odd because Tudor didn't seem to be working with Dracula. He actually seemed to be working behind Dracula's back because he was 
he was jealous of Dracula and the vampire sovereign nation thing. So I think that when Dracula ends up getting this message, I don't think that Dracula is going to take it like Mark thinks. He's going to end up sending Mark a thank you basket, maybe a fruit basket. You know, one of those things that Derek Jeter used to send the ladies and maybe a high five. So I'm waiting for that in the next couple issues. We need to get the Derek Jeter gift basket. That's what I need because this helped Dracula out in my mind. Now, not all is awful. You end up having a nice moment with Soldier explaining his motivations to Reese, and it ends up he's a follower. He doesn't have much going on. He had a lot of anger in the world. That's what made him an easy target for Hydra to come and grab and use as a weapon. But Mark isn't quite like that. Moon Knight is there to help him, so he will fight to the end for Moon Knight. I like that he says, I'll fight to the death. Seemingly, he's already dead, but, you know, that's not here nor there. But there is also an epilogue where we find out Zodiac is back in the book, and that really doesn't excite me at all either. As you can possibly tell, I was disappointed by this issue. There was way too much setup, issue after issue, all this time for it to end that easily. The art was fine, but I hope Jed McKay comes up with some better villains going forward. We need more of a threat. We need more villains here. The best that was going on in this book, I thought, was when you were actually going up against Hunter's Moon, but now he's on Team Moon Knight, and they're kind of going. So really what you need is to go after Conchu. Just do that. Get it out of the way. Just go. But who knows? We have Zodiac coming up. I don't know. But hopefully you get better villains. And please, if Jeb McKay would ever listen to this, which he won't, but if he did, we need more Tigra. She's there, but she's not doing anything. We need her to have something to do because she's awesome. So all of that, I'm going to give Moon Knight number 18 a 6 out of 10 with the hopes that it does improve with the next arc. But that's that. Thanks, everybody, for watching this. And please subscribe to the channel, like the video, enable the notifications, and let me know what you thought of Moon Knight number 18 in the comments below. I'm sure that a lot of people like this. This book is well-loved by a lot of people. It sells great. It's just, I, I just, I don't get it. It's just not hitting with me overall. And I really do think it's because there's not really great threats going on, great villains. But that could always be changed. I mean, that can change with one issue. So Hopefully, for me at least, it does because I'm a selfish guy. All right, and that's it. That's it for the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please go to the Twitters at WS Marvel Comics. Follow us. We'll follow you back. Go to our website, WeirdScienceMarvelComics.com. Check out our YouTube channel, which is Weird Science Comics. And then check out our Patreon, Patreon.com slash Weird Science to help us out for everything that we do, but get a ton of podcasts. In return, we have, uh, I mean, a ton. We end up, we're getting very close to what I thought I said before. I think it's almost 3,000 episodes of shows. That's a lot. So go and check that out. And also check out all the shows here on this feed. We ended up not having a X-Men or Star Wars podcast this week. They'll both be back next week as well as me coming in with the new books as well. But thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I will talk to you all later. Go read comics. You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science.
revolution. Mute science is the revolution.